if we went by the principle that those affected by a problem should be in charge of determining the solution, then the majority of the world's peace negotiators, foreign ministers, and diplomats would be women. Gender. It influences our identity, the role we play in our society, and the way that we interact with each other. The crucial role of women in preventing conflict and building peace has been recognized. Yet over the last 30 years, 70% of peace processes did not include any women mediators or women signatories. So peace, much like war, remains entirely dominated by men. Welcome to Season 6 of the Peace Corner podcast, brought to you by CSPPS, You Know Why Peace Builders, and GPAC. The Youth Threaten podcast, the Peace Corner aims to demystify peace building by giving peace builders across the world the opportunity to share their stories. We showcase the ordinary and extraordinary nature of peace building with the belief that everyone can be a peace builder. We just need to make space. This season explores gender dynamics in peace building. So who are the people making peace buildings more equal, inclusive and relevant? How are these pioneers making gender equality the norm? Keep listening to find out. Today's episode is presented by Sophia from You Know Why Peace Builders. Hello and welcome to all of our listeners tuning in to this episode of the Peace Corner podcast. Today we'll be discussing the very interesting and intricate relationship between gender, peace building and climate change. I'm delighted to welcome our wonderful guest, Cambria Kayat. Cambry is already a friend of and a familiar face to the United Network of Young Peace Builders, where she has contributed to the Youth Peace and Security Journal from the Network of Young Researchers, in addition to her work as a case study mentor. Beyond this, Cambria is a student in economics, international studies, and peace and conflict studies, and has stated that her motivation stems from her belief that governments, institutions, people, and systems can constantly improve. Among many other issues, Cambria is passionate about the reversal of the climate crisis, and we are eager to hear her thoughts on how this connects with gender and peace building. So with no further ado, thank you so much for speaking to us today. It is a pleasure to have you with us, Cambria. Now, to kick things off for this episode, could you maybe share with us a little bit more about how you first entered the field of peace building, and more specifically, peace building in relation to environmentalism and conflict? Hi, Sophia. Yes, thank you so much for having me. I'm truly delighted to have the opportunity to join you today. And I love the work you guys are doing on this podcast. Um, learning about different perspectives and peace building is always very ex- inspiring. And I'm really excited to jump right in. In regards to how I first got involved in peace building and specifically peace building in relation to environmental conflict, um, really stems from my background and upbringing. My father is a Palestinian immigrant um, that fled the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. And so I was always very aware of conflict and war and the effects that that has on individuals and people. And it was kind of commonplace at my dining room table to talk about this. So growing up in a low-income Palestinian immigrant family in a wealthy white suburb of Chicago, I always had this sense of dual consciousness, being able to analyze issues from multiple perspectives 
and seeing different angles because of the these different perspectives that I was raised with and these different backgrounds. So as you might expect for um, myself or other people in similar situations, this constantly put me in the position of peacemaker my entire life. And I took on this role as peace builder and communicator in multiple types of conflicts. And as I was growing up, one issue that was always very clear to me was that no matter of anybody's background or history or identity, we have this shared human experience that really brings us together. And one of those shared human experiences is living on planet Earth. And when I realized that that experience and opportunity and life was being threatened and not just being threatened, but really greatly affecting people and affecting certain marginalized groups more than others, I knew that this was something that I wanted to investigate more. Great. Thank you so much for shedding more light on that. And, you know, when talking about shared human experiences, whether that is with conflict, whether it's with our environment, I guess that also intersects for everyone also with gender. That is a shared human experience for everyone as well. So, of course, this season of the Peace Corner podcast is focused on gender in peace building. And we know that you have a particular focus on combating the climate crisis, in particular the consequences of human-induced climate change. So I'm curious to see how do you see this topic of climate change and climate conflict, that one that transects, say, with gender or intersectional feminist theory or however you see that fitting? Yes, Sophia, that is a great question. And I think a lot of times we use really big words for really simple, multifaceted, but simple concepts. And when thinking about feminism, it really is just resistance to sexist oppression. And environmentalism is trying to reduce the negative human impact on our earth. So in reality, both feminism and environmentalism is people coming together to combat forms of oppression that's human-induced or brought upon by our modern, modern societies and purchasing habits and things like that. And I think another concept when analyzing oppression is really just that oppression evolves over time and oppression is not stagnant. When we solve one issue, we create another. If, if you were to think about any sort of modern social, economic, political, or environmental issue or form of oppression, I could ask you, has it always been that way? Did it maybe look a little different when it started? What direction is it heading right now? What are some potential side effects of the current solutions or problems we have? But all of this is really to say that what we know about oppression is that it's not stagnant and it's never completely eliminated, but rather it evolves over time. So in regards to feminist theory and, and environmentalism, I think it's just really important that when we think about these things, we think about how are the solutions we're creating, addressing the issue, and what sorts of other problems are we creating as a result And one example that comes to mind is through the fast fashion industry and sweatshop labor as an initial solution to the demand for affordable clothing that has now kind of created and become this this very aggressive and harmful beast for both women and minorities and also the environment. Yes, definitely. And I think it's so important to recognize that that these aren't isolated 
battles, they don't exist in a vacuum. They really are all interconnected or two sides of the same coin. And it's really great to hear your thoughts on that. You know, it's clear in studies that climate change has the heaviest impact on those who are least responsible for it. Particularly, this is relevant in the global south on marginalised communities such as Indigenous people, people of colour, on women, on children. And I'm curious to hear what are some of the steps that you think the international community can take in combating climate change in a way that is conflict sensitive, that is gender sensitive? That's a great question. And I I talked very briefly about the fast fashion industry and the demand um, for cheap and stylish clothing. But I think that that example is a really clear and easy example to think about what the problem is and how we can think about solutions like you were mentioning. So just to analyze the issue a little bit first, fast fashion is the fashion industry that is constantly evolving very quickly when individuals are wanting cheap and fashionable clothing. So fast fashion is really bad for workers because it it targets the young and underage women as the workers and they work for very long hours with minimal pay and very unsafe working conditions. But the fast fashion industry also produces about 10% of all humanity's carbon emissions and is the second largest consumer of the world's water supply. On top of that, not to mention the microplastics that are being thrown into the oceans through these fashion industries. So that's the problem. So let's talk about the solution in regards to your question. And I think I think the best way to think about these things are through examples. But one very practical step that listeners can take um, to implement into their everyday lives would be to cut out fast fashion from your budget and focus on buying secondhand clothing, being conscientious of your waste and food waste also which will cause you to spend less on industries that are harming lots of marginalized individuals and laborers. And also the secondary effect being a lot of countries in the global South that are reaping a lot of the extreme impacts of the climate crisis. The climate crisis and environmental degradation is a form of violence um, that most targets future generations, youth and minority workers and in finding a policy step towards solving this one one way would be through representation of these individuals in policymaking. And I think it's incredibly important to recognize that the leadership and climate movements have often been from youth and minority individuals and indigenous groups, and that they not only have a commitment, but also a capability to push push um, against environmental violence and claim space and create really radical and important change on these issues. When I was reading your article in the YPS journal, you have this really amazing quote that states, although many forms of violence have a generational impact, environmental violence is especially harmful because it worsens over time. Um, So yeah, could you maybe shed more light on your understanding of what this invisible violence is and its significance in this debate? Like you mentioned, with environmental violence worsening over time, unfortunately, it really is this compounding interest of of conflict and violence where it's continuing to worsen over time. And like you mentioned, this compounding effect is only making it more harmful 
more difficult um, and more threatening to the lives of the minority individuals, women, um, laborers in a lot of developing countries. And unfortunately, on top of that, it's a lot of the countries that are not necessarily the main contributors of the climate crisis as well. So the visible forms of violence being scarcity arguments or land disputes over rising sea levels that have encroached on another individual's land, the invisible forms of violence that stem from environmental conflict are often in other ways. So environmental conflict is a type of conflict that manifests from environmental violence in the way that it harms ecosystems and its inhabitants' potential for life and development. When, when I speak about violence also, I'm referring to um, not only just the visible, visible harm and destruction, but also um, the invisible forms of violence, as Gal Tung really famously argued in um, his paper, Violence, Peace, and Peace Research in 1969. But environmental violence that stems from environmental conflict is a form of slow violence as it inhibits individuals like I said, for me reaching their maximum potential for life. Um, and I think an example of this would be in developing countries that are receiving waste from a lot of wealthy countries. So this dangerous industrial waste violates um, the individuals in that recipient country and takes away from their potential for development. Um, a really clear example of this would be in Gambia. And again, we see that a lot of the laborers in the waste industry are women and um, individuals from lower socioeconomic statuses. And what's, what's happening is there are large amounts of waste in the region and that's affecting the air, food and water quality, continuously harming the individuals in the environment. Yeah, and you know, I think it's important to recognize that there is this um, discrepancy in terms of who, is, who are mostly responsible for human-induced climate change and those who have to kind of reap the burdens of that in a way uh, or suffer the burdens of that. But I think one thing that peace builders are also more and more aware of these days is pushing back against the narrative that those most vulnerable to or strongly impacted by conflict, discrimination, poverty, violence, climate change are victims. Um, instead of this victimization narrative, it's important to focus on the most amazing adaptive capacities, resilience and creative forms of resistance that emerge and continue to emerge out of context experiencing these challenges. So maybe to kind of end and get some more of your final thoughts, what conditions do you think are necessary to harness this already existing potential and allow it to flourish into a peaceful, equal and sustainable society despite everything do you still have hope for this yeah yeah absolutely well i think to begin it's not um necessarily that certain conditions must exist for humans to have resilience i would like to believe personally that this resilience is often what flourishes in the face of these challenges and um, part of the shared human experience that we have on living on earth is realizing our capabilities and our capacity for resilience and how that is part of our shared humanness. Um, but when speaking about the climate crisis and gendered issues, I think it can be really overwhelming at times. And maybe um, some of the listeners have felt that before. I know I have. And I believe um, that 
having these conversations is also what really brings hope. Um, this having this conversation with you, seeing the work that is being done on the Peace Corner podcast is really a great example that when these conversations are happening, there really is the potential for change. And the time for change is not 10 years from now or when we're ready or anything like that, but the time for change is now. So my challenge to the listeners in all of this would also be to question their own habits, um, purchases, and beliefs about what is necessary to create change. Um, do you believe that there's potential for change? What's, and, and really asking yourself, what's stopping you from taking the big next steps in peace building? The last thing that I just wanna to touch on before we finish out is just giving some recognition to indigenous communities for their understanding um, and work on environmental issues. And I think that the global community definitely has a lot to learn from these practices. Yes, I think you have summed this up so nicely and I think it's a perfect way to end this episode. Cambria, it has been an absolute pleasure having you with us today and sharing your thoughts and insights. We really do appreciate it so much. Thanks for sharing your time and yeah, creating this space to talk about such an important topic. It's, it's really appreciated. Thank you so much. Thank you for joining us today and for contributing to a better world. Thank you for listening to the Peace Corner podcast and supporting our initiative. Feel free to share this episode with people around you who you think might benefit from it. And don't forget to subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or wherever you might be listening from.